Welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. Today's subject is Late Ottoman Translations of Ibn Khaldun. Now, this is part of our ongoing series on the history of science, Ottoman or otherwise, curated by Nir Shafir. To learn more about that series, visit our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com. We've got a lot of great episodes on intellectual history of the Ottoman Empire, the history of science, technology, uh, environment as well, medicine, a lot of great episodes that complement today's subject. Our guest today on the program is Kenan Tekin. He's a research assistant at Yalova University currently. Kenan, welcome yes. onto the program. Uh, thank you very much. Kenan has a PhD from the Department of Middle Eastern, South Asian, and African Studies at Columbia University with a dissertation entitled Reforming Categories of Science and Religion in the Late Ottoman Empire. Uh, he previously did an MA degree in religion at Duke University. Uh, and his research interests include the long durée study of Ottoman intellectual thought, history and philosophy of science and religion, as well as the genealogies of modern discourses. Kenan is also interested in the transition from manuscript to print culture and the social and cultural impacts of that transition on modernization and secularization processes. So Kenan's research very much fits in with a lot of the things we talk about in our History of Science series. So Kenan, uh, Ibn Khaldun, it's a big name uh, in, in Islamic history, in the history of Islamic uh, intellectual thought and science. For our listeners, Ibn Khaldun was a scholar and historian born in 14th century North Africa. He wrote many works, most famously his Muqaddimah, the Prolegomena, or uh, Introduction to History. Uh, today we'll be talking about the Muqaddimah not in relation to the life of Ibn Khaldun, but rather with regard to its reception in the Ottoman Empire. Specifically, we'll be discussing translations of Ibn Khaldun during the 19th century, and how the influential scholar and statesman Ahmed Jevdet developed and engaged with Khaldun's ideas about society and science within his historical context. I think we need to mention briefly what some of the major intellectual contributions of Ibn Khaldun's work have been, some of the ideas that were most important and central to the Muqaddimah, uh, and that have been sort of uh, picked up and, and elaborated upon by scholars both in the Islamic world and later uh, in Europe as well. Yes. One of the major contributions, I think, is developing history as a science. Right. And as a philosophical science. And this wasn't really happening. So the Muqaddimah itself is a kind of work that shows how history is a science, right. a philosophical science. Being an introduction, of course, being called Muqaddimah, is uh, also in line with the previous Islamic forms of producing knowledge mm -hmm. where they began their, uh, their works with uh, an introduction. And then in those introductions, they explained the subject matter of the science and the purpose of the science, uh, etc. Yeah. So the Muqaddimah here is also in that way uh, mentioning the subject matter of uh, history, purpose of history, but beyond that, also trying to point out uh, issues that are necessary for a historian in order to write uh, history. So right. it covers uh, a lot of topics, almost all kinds of knowledge and dealing with uh, institutional forms and uh, disciplinary knowledges, knowledge. So in that regard, uh, I think it is in itself uh, a major contribution to the discipline of history yeah um, some major ideas uh, in the muqaddimah we can mention the idea of asabiya right asabiya the how would you translate it i would think usually it is uh, called as group feeling mm -hmm. so it is trying as a concept it is trying to explain how is it that uh, certain dynastic powers are coming into being yeah and ibn khaldun uh, mentions that there is a kind of blood relation between uh, uh, nomadic uh, groups which right. brings them together of course and then of course uh, there is also a kind of ideological uh, group feeling which also is produced by religion right. so there are these two aspects of uh, asabiya which uh, go into producing uh, dynasties or uh, preservation of dynastic rule yeah i think the important thing also is that this uh, sci new science is also known the science of civilization, Al-Mur'an, yeah. 
And I think this concept is also interesting because uh, it is also in a way uh, translated as uh, the idea of like civilization, mm-hmm. Umran, but at the same time, I think uh, I would uh, call it uh, science of uh, forms of living together, forms yeah. of living together because it deals with nomadic societies and settled societies. Right. So hence a way of explaining forms of living together and different institutions that come into being or forms of knowledge that are produced in those. I mean, and that's one of the fascinating things about Ibn Khaldun's text is that, you know, he has this vocabulary that's very much based on the socio-political context that that he was writing in. And yes. uh, these very meaningful categories like, you know, the distinction between settled and urban communities versus nomadic communities, whether or not the boundary was as you know, deterministic as it appears in Ibn Khaldun or interpretations of Ibn Khaldun, yes. um, you know, he, de- he developed these ideas, you know, political theories, some would say like proto-sociological perspectives that could be applied in many cases throughout the world and yet arise from a very specific context uh, in the Islamic world and indeed a context that uh, was was different than the, the context of, say, pre- medieval or early modern Europe. So in that way, it's um, a very important work for a more global understanding of philosophy of history, yeah. politics, anthropology, sociology, etc. Yeah. Definitely, because his ideas uh, relate to uh, current forms of uh, humanities and social sciences. So, in some way, there are like you know gists of these ideas. Hence, many people want to call him father of economics or father right. of sociology in that way. But of course. Uh, uh, None we of should the, understand yeah. him in his own context and right. how he's trying to uh, produce uh, history as a science, uh, in my view. That is more primary focus of yeah. his work. Sure. And ultimately, yeah, history is as the basis of a wide range of inquiries uh, that were not considered distinct in the period that he was writing. They were all intertwined uh, disciplines and endeavors. Uh, that's important to keep in mind. And, uh, you know, if our listeners want to learn more about Ibn Khaldun, you can read uh, the Muqaddimah, translated in English. There's multiple translations available on the internet. Uh, and we do have a bibliography on our website. Ibn Khaldun has been widely po- wildly popular among European and, um, and American uh, scholars at least since uh, since the 18th and 19th centuries and, and continues to be taught in classrooms today. So we're not going to talk any more about Ibn Khaldun or his reception in the West, but rather move right on to another arena of reception, of reception perhaps an even earlier and more important arena of reception in a way, which is uh, the Ottoman Empire. So Ibn Khaldun's writings were influential among both scholars and statesmen in the Ottoman Empire. Often the two categories are one and the same, as we're going to be learning. Um, and of course, people could read, some educated people could read Ibn Khaldun in the original Arabic that it was written in. But uh, there were some translations of the Muqaddimah as, as early as the uh, 17th century, I guess. Uh, Kenan, could you tell us a little bit about the early history of Ibn Khaldun's Muqaddimah in the Ottoman Empire and its translations and interpretations by Ottoman scholars? Actually, Ibn Khaldun's work was in the beginning not known in the Ottoman uh, heartlands. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, uh, according to Conan Fleischer, at the turn of the 17th century that right. uh, uh, Ottomans, uh, an Ottoman took manuscripts of uh, Ibn Khaldun to Istanbul and then, uh, however, in the... From where? Yeah, from, I think, Cairo. Yeah. Uh, from, yeah. So, and then, uh, of course, in 17th century, we we see that, like, somebody, like, a major figure, like, Katib Celebi reads him closely. Mm-hmm. And uh, in his work, in Keshfur Zunun, especially in the introductory material, we can see a lot of excerpts from the Muqaddimah, especially the sixth chapter that concerns sciences, which ah, we'll yeah. talk further about. Yeah. And then, of course, uh, beyond that, there were some other Ottomans, like Naima, the historian, uh, who read him. And uh, in 18th century, actually, is when he was first translated. So the first translation was by Pirizade Mehmet Sahib, mm-hmm. uh, accomplished uh, between... 1725 and 1730. So it is an era that is also known as the Tulip era. Yeah. So this translation is incomplete, actually. So it is only first five chapters right. of the Muqaddimah that are translated. And the sixth chapter concerning sciences 
remains untranslated until 19th century. Right. In the mid 19th century, actually, uh, with the proliferation of print, we can see that also Ibn Khaldun's Muqaddimah was one of the first texts being, uh, one of the early texts being printed mm-hmm. in Cairo. Yeah. And then later in, uh, of course, in Istanbul. And uh, Pirizade's translation also was published mm-hmm. together with the untranslated uh, right. sex, uh, chapter. And then we can see at the same decade in 1850s, Ahmed Cevdet Pasha translated the sixth chapter and published it in uh, 1860. Right. And we'll get to that in just a minute. I mean, when, you, when you're talking there and you, know, you mentioned the work of Cornell Fleischer and others on some of the early reception of Ibn Khaldun, uh, once it arrives in the Ottoman Empire, sort of after the Ottoman Empire's expansion, especially into the Arab lands in, in Egypt that occurs during the 16th century, Ibn Khaldun's work, while it's a philosophy of history, we also have to point out that it's been so interesting to both historians and various social scientists and statesmen as well, precisely because it deals with central questions of political organization. So it's not just a philosophical text, it's quite a pract- it's a practical uh, text um, in terms of thinking and theorizing state society relations uh, and for that reason probably attracted yes. a lot of attention from statesmen I, actually uh, Cornel Fleischer also points out that like you know Ibn Khaldun was uh, received not because his originalism etc or like you know unfamiliarity yeah. rather his ideas were very familiar to the right. Ottoman statesmen uh, because Ottoman statesmen also wrote about history about societies nomadic and settled societies in a similar vein so in that regard or especially his ideas about like you know cyclical history right. uh, these were not like you know ideas uh, that were unique to Ibn Khaldun so right. this is why maybe one of the reasons there was an int- interest in Ibn Khaldun right. in reading him and exactly as you point out also uh, because the text itself, for instance, uh, deals with uh, many institutions and, like, you know, uh, ideas of caliphate, yeah. sultanate, and uh, all of these concepts uh, and crafts. Mm-hmm. So it is very uh, useful for bureaucrats. Right. And I think in my uh, research, I have found out that uh, the translation of Pirizade was especially uh, well received by um, bureaucrats. It is interesting that uh, Pirizade argued that he translated it at the behest of uh, some leading ulema. Yeah. But I think it is also interesting to consider that he translated it during uh, the reign of Sultan Ahmed uh, the Third and uh, Damat Ibrahim Pasha, the mm-hmm. Grand Vizier, who was right. a patron of uh, many of these tra- tra- translations occurring during the Tulip era. So my suspicion is also that perhaps he translated it for Grand Vizier, but he didn't state this because, of course, there was a rebellion right. and uh, Damad Ibrahim Pasha was executed. Right. So perhaps that is my suspicion. But also I, I want to say that uh, like these manuscripts of Pirzadeh's translation were owned by mostly by bureaucrats or endowed by the uh, elite or the sultan himself which again shows that uh, although the bureaucrats and scholars many times converged, being one and the same, we can see a, a difference that uh, these manuscripts really were uh, owned by the military and uh, the bureaucratic branch of the Ottoman government, those statesmen, rather than the scholars. Yeah, so Ibn Khaldun, before the 19th century, was already at the center of political thought in the Ottoman Empire during important political transformations that are taking place. And of course, you mentioned the cyclical conceptions of history found in Ibn Khaldun, which are, which are very fascinating and have you know, appealed to historians who, wherever they may be found. Um, but they were particularly relevant or newly, once again, relevant in the Ottoman Empire during the 19th century, precisely because... Uh, certain statesmen and scholars who were invested in the Tanzimat program saw this question of sort of rise and decline um, and, uh, you know, civilization and then its disintegration uh, 
incursion yeah. from outside, all of these themes that Ibn Khaldun deals with seemed very relevant when the Ottoman Empire was faced mm. with its own crises uh, and an attempt to try to reconsolidate the empire and reassert its authority uh, in the provinces. And, and uh, I guess that's where we should move to Ahmed Javdet because he sort of mm. is the quintessential man of that period, right? I don't know if our listeners yes. will get the reference, but he's kind of like the Kevin Bacon of the Tanzimat and that he seems to pop up everywhere. Ahmed Jadid, uh, of course, um, a major figure is yeah. uh, known by the Ottomanists. He played a significant role in the Tanzimat and yeah. a leading Tanzimat figure. He wrote the, fir um, the first uh, Turkish grammar, Kavaydi right. Osmaniye or right. Kavaydi Turkiye, also known. Together also with Fuad Pasha, they published it. And also they prepared the... Uh, regulations for the company, Shirketi Hayriye, auspicious yep. company. Again, an interesting development. Uh, his work is also uh, significant in the field of codification of Islamic law, right. which is known also the Majelle. Right, the Majelle, and uh, also the land code as well. He worked on that commission. Exactly. Yeah, Exactly. All of uh, these, like, you know, he was minister of justice for uh, a few times, quite. Yeah. And then uh, also Minister of uh, Education at uh, one time, I believe. So he played uh, a major role right. in the Ottoman transformations in 19th century. Right. And to top it all off, his, his daughters ended up being major figures in the Ottoman women's movement, writers exactly. in their own right. So he's this kind of person who's everywhere. And yet I feel like in the English historiography the relevance of Ahmed Javdat is sometimes underemphasized. Maybe perhaps just to mention Fatma Ali, of course, right. was uh, his daughter and is known as uh, the uh, first Ottoman uh, female woman novelist. But although there are some other novels, right. she wrote uh, 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 many. So that is why she's known as the first right. Ottoman novelist. Yeah, yeah. But and then other, as you mentioned, the other daughter being a leading feminist Kind of right figure, yeah. yeah, yeah, and I mean, one of the things is that Jeff, that you know, he also served as governor. We could go on and on, but the point is, this is somebody who's both involved in intellectual production, whether through yeah. translation or commentary or writing, basically a, a history commissioned by the, by, you know, as as the state historian of the Ottoman Empire, yes. or implementing actually ideas that are based on these philosophies of history and society. So he's a really fascination, fascinating um, convergence of theory and practice in, think, a, in that yes. regard. I think one thing that I want to also add is Javed, in my view, appears to be one of the, like, you know, a, a speechwriter right. for uh, Grand Vizier Mustafa, especially from the, his autobiography, we can see that many of these regulations were also, he was writing, or uh, for instance, in the opening of a uh, ceremony for the uh, Ottoman Academy of Sciences in Jumani Danish, he says that yeah. he prepared the he wrote the speeches. So in a way, we can see he was like also writing speeches for other leading Ottomans. We can see how significant that is for um, the direction of uh, reform or how significant a role that is for to play. And I think we should, we, you know, we've been saying Tanzimat, Tanzimat, Tanzimat over and over again, but it's important to remember that, you know, it's, the Tanzimat period sort of ends in a way with the, with the ascension of uh, Abdul Hamid II to the throne, right? It's sort of a new era of Ottoman history. And Jevdet is one of the few figures, or not few, but he's one of the figures that really straddles both periods, right? He's both very important during the Tanzimat period, the high Tanzimat period after the Crimean War, but he remains one of the yes. most influential statesmen under Abdul Hamid II. And in yes. fact, that's really where he reaches uh, the height of his influence uh, and participates in the liquidation of some of his rivals, such as yeah. Mithat Pasha, not to yeah. be confused with Ahmed Mithat, with whom he also yeah. had some yeah. yeah, He was like, you know, uh, he has some correspondence. Of course, he write some reviews for Ahmed Mithat Efendi's works. Uh, of course, that is also, again, we can see how he's different. Sometimes these figures are all put together, but like, you know, the, as being conservative, like Ahmed right. Jazid Pasha and Mi Ahmed Mithat Efendi, but we can see there is a difference between their projects. Right. Uh, from uh, their correspondence, we can see tensions between their uh, ideas. And, and I mean, you know better than me because you really focus on the intellectual history of the Ottoman Empire. But I think... 
this is in part due to their very intellectual trajectories. I mean, we mm. have to emphasize that Ahmed Javdat Pasha is not unique, but he is distinct in that he's very much educated as an alim of the ulama. Yes. You know, it's not that he's cut off from quote unquote Western or secular science by any means mm. during this period, but his his trajectory is still from the what you know we as Orientalists would call the Islamic sciences. He's yes, he's trained, yes. you know, as a as a religious scholar at first, you know. Yeah, I think uh, that is important to note that he had a wide ranging education. He's uh, very hardworking. Uh, he was a very hardworking student. Apparently, he didn't take any vacations, and he mastered traditional sciences in the madrasa. Of course, attending also lectures in the mosque, but also he took some uh, private lessons with professors from uh, military engineering military school and uh, on astronomy yeah uh, and mathematics so he was also familiar with uh, new sciences in that regard i think uh, that is one reason he was uh, capable of uh, translating ibn khaldun's muqaddimah which really right. requires a wide ranging education certainly certainly and as we're going to discuss he not only translated ibn khaldun but really took a lot of liberties in interpreting Ibn Khaldun and other thinkers from, uh, you know, the Islamic hit, uh, philosophical uh, and scholarly traditions that uh, he worked with. Welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Grayton here with Kenan Tekin. We're talking about the reception of Ibn Khaldun in the Ottoman Empire, and in particular, the translation of Ibn Khaldun's Muqaddimah by the scholar and statesman Ahmed Cevdet Pasha. We've, we've just spent a lot of time talking about the importance for Ibn Khaldun uh, among uh, Ottoman statesmen and military officials, bureaucrats, even before the 19th century Tanzimat period, and kind of set the stage to discuss uh, the 19th century recep reception of Ibn Khaldun within the context of major administrative state reforms and within an intellectual environment sort of characterized by a blend of different uh, intellectual influences ra ranging from new things coming out of Europe, but also sort of renovating or reinterpreting uh, familiar aspects of the Islamic literary and philosophical traditions. And really, the figure we're going to talk about, Ahmad Javdat, is one of the most emblematic figures for discussing this uh, very phenomenon. So, Kenan, as you mentioned, these, the last chapter of Ibn Khaldun's Muqaddimah had been left untranslated by earlier scholars, and so Ahmad Javdat put particular uh, efforts to translate that sixth chapter. You know, what was in that sixth chapter, and what are some of the uh, ideas uh, in Ibn Khaldun's work that uh, Ahmad Javdat had sought to engage with? Um, the chapter basically covers... Uh... Some, has some introductory material about science, the idea of science, uh, and uh, covers basically uh, various sciences, ranging from rational sciences mm -hmm. and then uh, religious sciences. And then has ideas about pedagogy, uh, right. and also finally linguistic sciences are uh, dealt with. I think this chapter is, in a way, uh, it is a very significant chapter in uh, terms of understanding the idea of science. And uh, my initial interest in this topic was because I, I wanted to understand how Jevdet translating this uh, chapter was diverging or was interpreting uh, Ibn Khaldun uh, in 19th century. Yeah you, yeah, you mentioned that, that, that 
This isn't just a translation, it's also a commentary and interpretation, and one that's rooted in a particular transformed political context of yes. the 19th century yes. that we've been talking about. This translation was produced in 1850s, so in mm -hmm. uh, the early years of 1850s, uh, of course, we see establishment of Ottoman Academy of Sciences. Right. As part of this academy, Jevedet was tasked with uh, writing history of Ottoman Empire covering between period of 1774 and 1826, I mm -hmm. believe. So it is uh, interesting that uh, it is during this decade that he's producing initial volumes and uh, at the same time gets interested in uh, translating Ibn Khaldun's Right. The sixth chapter, which doesn't seem to be especially commissioned by by this uh, Academy of Sciences, no. but my sense is that uh, the Academy was trying to produce text and translate text mm -hmm. into Ottoman Turkish from both Arabic and Persian and from European languages uh, so that uh, the future university student would have some material to study. So I think... Uh, it was part of also this attempt at producing literature in Ottoman Turkish uh, that uh, Cevdet uh, sought to translate this Mukaddime uh, into Ottoman Turkish. And hence also the reason why he has so many explications uh, in between. So he interprets in Ibn Khaldun, he adds to Ibn Khaldun's ideas, he updates him, I want right. to point out. So that is the reason I think uh, he is kind of commenting, glossing the text throughout. Yeah, and I mean, Jevdet's own history has this lengthy introduction, uh, which is theoretical and which is clearly influenced by Ibn Khaldun. As Christoph Neumann points out, in that history, which which is sort of the meta-narrative of the Tanzimat in a sense, um, sort of providing a history that uh, that it gives the justifications for the very... The very um, actions carried out by the Ottoman state during the 19th century. Uh, it's a fascinating work of interpretation. And, you know, Neumann says that Jevdet does take a lot of liberty. So what are the, what are some of the ways in which can you give examples in the translations and commentary that you see Jevdet updating uh, and sort of changing, the, altering the meaning or interpreting the meaning of Ibn Khaldun's Muqaddimah? Maybe we can begin with pointing out some of the continuities in their idea about the sciences, yeah. and then uh, hence where he is also changing. Exactly. For instance, uh, the continuity I see in their general understanding of human beings, and then uh, in the history of science, in, in their mm -hmm. conception of history of science, uh, there is some continuity. In the understanding of human being, of course, they both try and define human being as uh, thinking beings, uh, thinking animals. Mm -hmm. So. In that regard also, for instance, in uh, Ibn Khaldun points out d three different worlds in a section, like the uh, world of external world, mm -hmm. uh, human soul, and the world beyond that. So right. angelic world, he calls it. So in interpreting the soul, for instance, Javed Pasha, in trying to prove soul, he points out that uh, uh, currently... Uh, there are surgeries being done on the brain which show dif how different parts of uh, brain function or relate to specific things. But apparently people who have uh, visionary or who have uh, some visions, even though there are surgeries on their brain, on their, uh, they, they cannot find any specific section. So he thinks that this kind of uh, uh, ability to know uh, is then hence shows that uh, there is a world right. of it proves the soul soul exists that right. soul can it, it is not related to a specific section of the brain right. but that there is an entity separate from the brain right so it's an interesting use of the physical or empirical sciences of the 19th century saying that exactly. look the brain is where human thought takes place and, yes. and behavior and all of this but if you cut it open, you can't find a physical structure relating to certain aspects of the spiritual world, and therefore there's something that's beyond um, yes. the reach of the empirical yes. yeah. uh, sciences. Another example we can give from his criticism of philosophical metaphysics, of mm -hmm. course, which uh, uh, Ibn Khaldun also criticized philosophers for their, their cosmology of 10 intellects. For instance, in criticizing them, Javedet Pasha, uh, Javedet, uh, uh, points out that there are many more planets 
than the previously known. Hence, the number of uh, intellects uh, have to be more than 10 intellects. Right. So in a way, using modern astronomy to criticize the uh, older metaphysical cosmological uh, ideas. So here we see Jevdet using contemporary science of his day to sort of reinforce the validity of Ibn Khaldun's scholarship, right? The, his ideas exactly. saying that modern science in a way is proving that Ibn Khaldun was right, I th- to put it in simple yes. terms. I think this is also where uh, there's an, a, way, a kind of continuity because both Ibn Khaldun criticized philosophical metaphysics so Jevdet, as a Sunni, he is also, even though in favor of modern sciences, he kind of refrains from uh, uh, metaphysical issues that sci- scientists should not really try to produce new metaphysicals. Mm-hmm. And he kind of uh, allocates this realm uh, to religion. So we can see how Jevdet is creating a niche for religion in the age of modern science. Yeah, that's very interesting. I mean, and thinking about... Ibn Khaldun as a scientist and philosopher, but seeing how he's used by religious thinkers or people like Jevdet, you see how in the early modern period, a distinction between religion and other forms of knowledge um, was a bit blurrier within uh, the Islamic context. But Jevdet is sort of one of these people who's rationalizing the world and, and compartmentalizing it in some ways and trying to find where religion fits into this uh, system of both knowledge and of the state as well. I think this is really a good point that, you know, uh, one of Jesus' contribution here is to kind of think about sciences anew, uh, these sciences. Yeah. Although Jesus still recognizes religious sciences as legitimate sciences, from this commentary we can see that really religion is being... Uh, limited uh, to certain aspects, especially regarding uh, uh, regarding natural and philosophical sciences. Right. And here, I think it is also significant to note uh, Jevdet's criticism of Ibn Khaldun. Ibn Khaldun, for instance, he uh, criticized uh, natural philosophy. He rejected alchemy. Right. As, uh, in this regard, Jevdet points out that there are improvements in physics. And in chemistry, right. in, uh, especially in Europe, and he says that these are no longer uh, susceptible to such general criticism, right? Because older natural philosophy was more metaphysical, so it was easier to criticize. But the uh, contemporary physics and chemistry, they are immune to such criticism because of the rigorous epistemology right. uh, that we can see in modern period. So, is there any other places where we see Jeff that sort of not disagreeing with Ibn Khaldun, but taking liberty, uh, sort yes. of taking Ibn Khaldun's in a direction, ideas in a direction that maybe were not intended by Ibn Khaldun, or even yes. inadvertently contradict uh, yes. the material. I think um, also maybe perhaps something that we can point out in regards to the history of sciences. I mean, I should uh, say that this text is really important. I see it in a way as a first history of science in the modern period in Ottoman Turkish. Really? And uh, I think many later Ottoman intellectuals uh, read Jevdet's translation of Ibn Khaldun, the sixth chapter, and although they might not uh, say it, I can see some kind of resemblance, some kind of origins in mm-hmm. uh, this Jevdet's uh, translation of Ibn Khaldun and his commentary. Here I want to also point out the way Jevdet, there is a continuity in their writing about uh, history of science in that they see sciences as being uh, in motion, mm-hmm. itinerant, and uh, traveling from place to place. And here we see that uh, Jevdet also uh, agrees with uh, Ibn Khaldun's idea that sciences uh, develop in uh, places where there is a powerful politi- politics or uh, there's a political po- a strong political power, and they decline as uh, uh, there is uh, there is instability or decline right. of uh, political power. So hence, a kind of relationship between politics and, and uh, knowledge production. The fate the fate of the state and political power are completely intertwined with the fate of uh, scientific inquiry. Exactly. So in uh, explaining developments in Europe, he points out the uh, emergence of uh, strong political powers. But at the same time, I think it, it was interesting that he points out that uh, they uh, had 
these uh, sciences developed because they translated them into right. vernacular languages, European mm. languages. Hence, we can see Cevdet also in translating Ibn Khaldun to Ottoman Turkish tries to empower Ottoman politics. There's also a, a, that kind of relationship. One of the things you bring up is this whole idea of science as the bride of civilizations. Could you explain what that is? Actually, this is an idea that uh, this is a fig- uh, figure that is used by uh, Ahmed Cevdet himself mm-hmm. in uh, explaining devel- uh, the history of sciences and how science travels from one state to another and from mm-hmm. one empire to another. Uh, Cevdet explains that uh, the bride of civilization currently is in Europe. Right. And that like in each place, in each uh, station, the bride uh, wears different costumes. Of course, being in Europe at that moment, uh, has this costume of uh, modern sciences right. and modern civilization. So he says, we don't know where the bride will travel next. In a way, there is a, 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 an, understanding, an understanding of one civilization that is traveling f- from empire to empire and opens up the possibility for non-European people to perhaps be the next receptor of that civilization, yeah. the bride of civilization, and perhaps also uh, contributing to that civilization in changing her costumes. I mean, there's so many interesting things about this metaphor, not just that he kind of introduces it on his own Ibn, into Ibn Khaldun's text, but the fact that it's gendered, that civilization yeah. is somehow masculine, which makes sense considering his uh, conception of the state and that science is feminine in this way, that it it can be married to civilization in order to achieve a a very nice union, given Jevdet's interest in the family, his interest in uh, religion and in Islamic law and all in sort of uh, instituting like proper family practice, of course, through the Majelle and these types of things. The metaphor is very revealing in terms of how Jevdet thinks. But as you say, it's also revealing in that it portends other writers as well who try to dissociate like culture of the Ottoman Empire or other places from like a more universal form of science that can be adopted in many cultural yeah. contexts. So I think that is uh, significant because later on there is more emphasis in on Islamic civilization or Christian civilization, European civilization, or um, different kinds of civilization. But at this early period, it seems that the Ottoman intellectuals uh, think that there is one civilization. And that civilization can be imported and developed. Uh, In that regard, I think uh, Jevdet's notion of uh, the bride of civilization with different costumes traveling around yeah, is uh, significant, but also it in a way also reminds me of the kind of depiction of sciences in European history, mm-hmm. which are generally uh, depicted by female figures. Yeah. Right? So I don't know if that is really uh, that has anything to do with that uh, yeah. tradition in Europe, but uh, that is something perhaps one could. Uh, look further to see where the idea is uh, coming from. Welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Grayton here with Kenan Tekin. Uh, We've been talking about Ahmed Javdet's translation of Ibn Khaldun's Muqaddimah and how it was really more than just a translation, that it was a commentary, that it was an expansion on it. And Kenan has very provocatively uh, said to us that he sees it as really an early history of science uh, in the Ottoman Empire that is penned during a moment of extreme political uh, and socioeconomic cultural transformation um, that we've been discussing throughout Now, our listeners who are real uh, intellectual history buffs of the Ottoman Empire will surely point out that Ahmed Jevdet is just one of many Ottoman thinkers, both in his time and before and after. And some of his ideas are, of course, shared 
And while he may have been one of the most prolific writers, he's certainly not the only person uh, who was addressing um, the place of the sciences in the Ottoman Empire during uh, the, the period of transformation that occurs from the late 18th century onward. Kenan, to conclude our discussion, I'd like to talk a little bit more about your broader work. Because what you're doing is trying to understand the shifts that occurred in science in the Ottoman Empire. I guess Ahmed Javdat is right at the crux of your story in a lot of yes. ways. He's right at the heart of it. So tell us, what is the broader shift that you're trying to study? Um, and if you would do so in relation to some of the other historiography, so our listeners can find out what else to read, that would be very helpful. Thanks. Yes. I think, of course, maybe perhaps mentioning the most recent work by Alper Yalçınkaya yeah. is important. Learned Patriots. Learned, yes. So he already gives a good kind of uh, overview of what was happening in terms of uh, the changing idea of science and scientists and the relation between scientists and virtue and uh, values. But And the periodization of his work is... Uh, it also uh, more or less begins with Selim the third and then uh, he begins with Tanzimat and then Meshrutiyet kind of uh, Hamidian period. Yeah. So what were some of the major shifts that yeah. were happening at that time? It is important to note uh, nationalism. Right. I think nationalism as an idea is new and I see that also playing with regard to sciences that the narrative of sciences uh, uh, increasingly becomes a nationalistic narrative. And what narrative, do you mean by that? Narrative ab about who contributed to sciences, especially uh -huh. in Islamic history, that the Turks contributed to sciences, Persians contributed or Ar Arabs contributed. Right. So we can see increasingly people try to look at history of science uh, in terms of uh, a nationalist perspective and in claiming different figures, uh, beginning with this period. Right. And although... Uh, Ibn Khaldun's work, the Muqaddimah, makes some interesting uh, claims about uh, uh, Persians and Greeks and Arabs. Uh, I think, of course, uh, the way it is read in 19th century is very interesting, that how he's taken up by nationalists. You mean he's nativized to, into a Turkish context? He's, uh, he's He's put into polemics, I think, in 19th ah. century between different uh, nationalist uh, groups that, uh, you know, Ibn Khaldun points out that Persians are the most learned in sciences mm -hmm. and hence, so, uh, but Ibn Khaldun at, at the same time argues that uh, native Arabs are more, in, can easily learn uh, sciences than uh, non-native Arabs, for, um, for instance, Arab speak Arabic speakers. Mm -hmm. So, there, there is an interesting story about uh, nationalism and science that is kind of influencing the idea of science. But also, one thing that I am focusing on, on is separation of science, religion, and politics. Mm. And I think with regard to the sciences, this is important because uh, increasingly we see the idea of science as referring to positive sciences, what right. we would call. So religious sciences no longer being uh, uh, emphasized and uh, or included within the history of sciences uh, increasingly. Mm -hmm. So I think in that regard, I, in my uh, study, I find that uh, the emergence of printing, printing press also plays a role mm -hmm. in that uh, the government tries to control printing press. Right. And hence the new publications have to point out whether they, what, uh, what is the subject matter of their publication, especially the periodicals. So increasingly, they want to exclude uh, issues of religion from issues of uh, sciences. Right. So that uh, they don't come under scrutiny or they are not uh, prevented from printing. That is, again, an issue. But in all, what kind of role, if we say what kind of role Javed's translation is playing? I think Javed's translation is important or Javed's uh, ideas are important because although he doesn't have this kind of separation of religious sciences yeah. and rational sciences, or he does not oppose uh, religious sciences, uh, because he already notices the importance of uh, physics and chemistry and natural science in general mm -hmm. and mathematical sciences, in that way we can see a kind of uh, 
a shift in understanding of science or a, uh, approach to sciences, but also in terms of uh, vernacularization. Yeah, I think because this text itself is, uh, as I mentioned, with regard to nationalism, he is uh, translating it into Ottoman Turkish. Right. So he's making it essentially Ottoman, right? It, exactly. Ibn Khaldun be, is transformed from an Arabophone thinker, yes. an, an Arab from the from the 14th century, into part of the Turkish the emerging Turkish intellectual tradition as the as the very concept is in its infancy. You, yes, so I, I also see that as a part of nationalization of uh, yeah. sciences. So yeah. vernacularization, maybe also in the 19th century, we can read as nationalization right. of uh, science. So another development with regard to the changing idea of science is increasing specialization. So people no longer... Uh, master all of the sciences, like, you know, become polymath, like uh, earlier periods, like Ibn Sina, Ibn Rushd, Ibn Khaldun, or even Javed, who exactly. might be considered uh, as a polymath, but increasingly we can see an emphasis on specialization, and Javed himself points out that uh, sciences increased and expanded to an extent that uh, it is impossible to specialize uh, in all of the sciences, so right. people are increasingly are um, just mastering one science right. or even uh, an aspect of one science. So that uh, development Jeff already points out in his work. You know, in many ways, this speaks to the larger familiar historiographical questions that maybe haven't been approached as much from the perspective of this intellectual history or, you know, have ignored things such as works of translation people writing about modernity, people writing about the, the quote-unquote encounter with the West and, and the Ottoman Empire's relationship to the West and its reception of would-be Western ideas. Uh, Javdat's story, you know, his translation of Ibn Khaldun and, and the career that he embodied leaves us with a very ambivalent or complex picture of what that really was, uh, precisely for all the reasons that you've been discussing, that he simultaneously engaged with many different intellectual traditions, uh, saw them as part of a, a larger, um, you know, rational inquiry. Saw Ibn Khaldun as um, somehow belonging to you know the Ottoman intellectual tradition, even though Ibn Khaldun himself was not Ottoman. Um, he's he's really uh, part. He's really standing at the center of exactly these shifts that ultimately can be interpreted in a number of ways and took a number of permutations as the end of the Ottoman period and the beginning of the early Republican period in Turkey approaches. Yes, I think a uh, very important point, good point, uh, that uh, many times uh, history of Ottoman modernization uh, is seen as a kind of transfer of knowledge from the West to the Ottoman Empire, but uh, the translations from the Arabic previous Arabic uh, works or Persian works are not emphasized. And in right. that regard, that is really interesting to see how Jezet is translating this text and engages it and uh, sees a value in translating that text right. in 19th century. And uh, also I should maybe mention uh, the first volume of uh, Muka uh, History of Ibn Khaldun is also translated by Abdullah Sufi Pasha mm -hmm. uh, at that time. So we can see how that kind of uh, challenges our uh, general understanding that Ottoman Empire is being modernized uh, basically through the translations from French or right. English or other European languages. And what's so fascinating in that is precisely what you just said about vernacularization and maybe we could call it nativization of the Arabic uh, and Persian uh, scientific traditions that in the classic Orientalist framing uh, when Jevdet uh, engages with a French thinker, you know, that's that's reception of Western modernity. But when Jevdet engages with a Persian or Arabic writer, that's simply him doing, you know, the Islamic sciences as if that's somehow not a foreign, somehow not the reception of a foreign work. Rather, they, scholars may take for granted that, that, that those works were, you know, just part of Ottoman intellectual tradition. And as we've shown here and and discussed through this discussion of translation, really that's not the case, that, you know, those two are, in fact, new um, importations or re-importations uh, yes. into Ottoman thought. And I think that the, the project you're doing is very fascinating in that regard, 
kind of seeing all these different forms of knowledge circling around these different uh, 19th century figures. Thank you. I mean, in that regard, also, it is, of course, important to see how Javedet, for somebody like Javedet, is uh, differing from uh, someone like Ahmed Mithat Effendi, right. who really mainly translates from French works, right. although he reads uh, the classical works as well, and he increasingly becomes familiar with, with uh, especially um, through his uh, feedback from Ahmed Javedet, uh, uh, and then uh, his uh, daughter Fatma Aliye. Right. So maybe to to end with, I think um, perhaps we can, uh, by looking at uh, this translation or by locating it in the history, emergence of history of science also in the Ottoman Empire. Of course, many people are familiar with Abdul Haq Adnan Adwar's work later on, but. Uh, Ahmed Mithat Efendi in in this at the same time is interesting because he tried to write a book uh, entitled Tarihi uh, Ulum History of Sciences. Yeah. So in that regard we can see there is actually a path open up perhaps with this translation of Javedet and right. then a people genealogy written, yes, in a way of the yes, history exactly. of science, yeah. So I I think uh, that kind of uh, that is why this uh, text uh, deserves more attention in that historiography. Right. And it's fitting that we're recording this here at Harvard University, where, of course, you know, the first PhDs in the history of science were granted. Indeed, one of them, maybe even the first, I think, as Nir Shafir often points out on the podcast, was granted to a Turkish uh, student, Aydin Sayla, who studied uh, right here at Harvard and whose papers are in the archives here at Harvard, to, uh, to trace that genealogy back to Jevdet, who also, by the way, links to even earlier figures who we've, met, who we've mentioned in this podcast, Ottoman thinkers of the 18th and 17th century. It opens up exciting frontiers um, in the uh, study of uh, Ottoman intellectual history. Of course, I want to emphasize the contribution here of Kenan, focusing on a, a work of translation, which, or, or like a work of commentary, for example, seeing these texts as intellectual products themselves rather than mere repetition or transmission uh, is very crucial to uh, putting together the pieces of the puzzle that is the transformation of uh, science and knowledge uh, in the uh, Islamic world. So thanks, Kanan. Thanks for coming on the program and doing that with us today. Thank you, Chris, for having me. And good luck in your future publications. I want to remind our listeners that we do have a bibliography on our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, where you can find many episodes relevant to today's discussion. It's a great place to leave your comments and questions, or maybe even take to Facebook and meet our almost 30,000 followers who are constantly discussing our latest material uh, as it it is released uh, on that platform. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening, and join us next time in another installment of Ottoman History Podcast.